The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. Plus, off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help get you through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Shaq here, spinning fast-acting pain relief for 2024 with Icy Hot. Take it from me, sticking to your new workout routines can lead to sore muscles. Icy Hot starts working instantly to dull the pain with the icy cool sensation. Then, the warming sensation relaxes it away. Feel the power of Icy Hot's contrast therapy. Ice works fast. Heat makes it last. Icy Hot. You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Marlon James. Hello? Hello, is this Marlon James? I just realized that I was trying to put um, a sp- speaker going so that it would be playing music. Instead, it just puts your big booming voice. Tell me, do, do you while you're while you're writing, do you actually play music? I do. I can't write in silence. You know, I grew up in a very busy urban place. There's always noise. There's always traffic. There's always sound systems playing. There's reggae blasting from everywhere else. So it's like, they, they, this is the only time I feel comfortable. When I'm in my office writing, I open the windows just so I can hear traffic. Really? Um, yeah. So I, I, I can't, I, I, I didn't grow up in quiet. You grew up in a place like Jamaica or, or you grew up in Kingston or New Orleans or Calcutta or so on. You just, you don't know quiet. You don't know what to do with it. And, and what, does music? I mean, I, I I suspect that different music music inspire different kinds of writing, or, or I don't know. I um, for example, my last novel, of course, um, was hugely built around Mali, a reggae star. Yeah. but I rarely played reggae. I played lots of Bjork, um, lots of Stereolab. Um, and lots and lots of German 70s rock, like Can and No and Faust, and lots of craft work. Um, lots of John Peel sessions, like the Adam and Peel sessions and the Joy Division and the New Order Peel sessions. Um, that was kind of the one thing I didn't do. So in a way, the the writing, one might say, was was what supplied what you were not listening to, and what you were listening to in some way inspired the writing, but not because it was a direct link. Not because it was a direct link. I think one, yeah, I don't know if it so much inspired the writing as it created space. Yeah, I, I, I hate the word inspired. I, I retract that immediately. I know, I was just... Um, um, hanging out with somebody um, who was mentioned that they were a playwright, but they write when they're inspired. And like, oh, that's wonderful. I haven't been inspired to write anything in thirty years. Right. <laughs> what 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 do you what do you dislike about the word inspired? 
One one thing I dislike about it is the whole idea that that talent and inspiration is this um, sort of capricious, um, flighty thing that you know if it happens to strike you, then you can do something, and if it doesn't, it, it you know you don't do you don't produce anything. I think I don't think talent works that way. Either you have the talent or you don't. I also think if you develop a routine and develop a seriousness, the muses, the inspiration, whatever you want to call her, will show up. It's, um, you know, you direct inspiration. Inspiration doesn't direct you. So in a, in a way, it, it fights this, this very romantic idea of um, the poet or the writer or the creator being, having a visitation, as it were, being visited by the muse. And no serious poet believes that. You know, poets, poets get down to work just as, as any other creative person. You know, the, the, the dancer gets down to work. I like that Hemingway always walked around with his, his typewriter, because his typewriter meant that when he's writing, he got down to work. And, um, and I'm a big believer in that, that writing is work. So, um, you know, we have so many negative associations to the term work that we think it's uh, almost a pejorative. But writing is work for me, and it's, um, I just don't have the luxury of waiting until mood strikes. I don't have the luxury of waiting until this sort of inspiration um, strikes. I also don't believe that's how ideas work. How, how do they work? I think ideas hit you when you're busy. I think when you're in, the, when you are, when you are already in the process of discovering, of writing, of creating, that's what leads to creation. And I think um, Joan Didion is right, which is that we write to discover how we think. You don't discover how you think, then write. So it's in in the it's in the process of writing that that you you come into being. You know, I'm always reminded of the origin of the word autobiography, which literally means to come into life through the mm -hmm. act of writing, graphene, like gra graphology, the very act of inscribing words on a page brings yourself to life. It's, 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 um, you can, you know, you can, you can write your way into creativity. It's like, you can, you can, you can write yourself into being. Um, you know, I wrote an article when I said, um, you know, reading, reading Salman Rushdie's novel, she and made me realize the person is something you can write your way into or write your way out of. Um, so that's why I kind of don't believe in writer's block. Uh, you can, you can read your way out of writer's block. You know, I just had a conversation, Marlon, the other day, a few, a couple of weeks ago, not, not even quite, with Neil Gaiman. And he said exactly the same words you just uttered. I do, I do not believe in writer's block. You know what? You know what he said. He said, "I don't believe in writer's block." It just comes back to me, Marlon, and forgive me for interrupting you, but I want to retrieve what he said. I always forget what people say. I just speak to them. But what he said is, um, "I don't believe in writer's block." And then I said, "But, but you know, it has such uh, power." that word of writer's block. He said, yes, because writers are incredibly good at convincing you, and they're incredibly smart at trying to make this into a reality. But in fact, it does not exist. 
Oh, he's absolutely right. I think it's 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 like inspiration. Um, you know, this sort of thing that you know, I think I think sometimes people confuse inspiration with ideas. Um, uh, yes, ideas, ideas. You know, you can't. I don't think you you can rarely can you sit down and construct an idea. It's like trying to construct an accident. Um, so ideas can come to you, but the sort of inspiration, the push, the most, the the the, the, the that spark that gets you into something. If you're going to sit on and wait on it, what happens if that spark doesn't happen for 15 years? You know, it's, it's this idea that. Um, Art is something so precarious that uh, if if you're not visited by the grand theory of ideas, then you're you're kind of blocked. Um, writing is also rigor. Writing is also polish. Writing is also dedication. Writing is also craft, which people seem to forget. I, I tell my students, writing is also practice. Um, you know, your 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 first draft or your first two things is not the spewings of genius that should be left untouched. It's a it's it's a barely fleshed out idea um, that you need to know, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. What do you? How do your students? I'm I'm sure there's not one, but generally speaking, or how do some of the students react to basically this invitation to not wait around, but to get down to work? because they're still under this idea that they have nothing to say. And I think that's one of the things, certainly at their age, that they consider a block. You know, it's you have two people. You have the people who think, I'm such a freak, I'm such a nerd, I'm such an outcast, nobody would like me, even though they're writing fiction. And then you have other people who think, my life is so privileged and dull and boring, I have nothing to write either. And the funny thing about those people, the ones who think your lives are too good and the ones who think your lives are too bad, is that they're both responding out of shame. It's bo Both of them have the same shame response, which is, in some way, I am not worthy of, of, of um, writing. I'm not worthy of expressing myself for whatever reason. And um, my advice to writers, particularly if they're writing nonfiction, is stop being self-hating or self-loving and become self-curious. Um, you know, look at writing. Um, writing can be a lot of things, but writing is also a mystery to solve. You're not going to solve it, but the attempt is great. Um, and I think that, that there is um, a lot of mystifying that goes on when it comes to to writing and writers. And I do think ultimately comes down to, to talent. But I think a lot of it is just this sort of literary hocus-pocus that we all sort of spread around. Did did you suffer from from this form of um, of of sh what you call shame, which is such an interesting term in analytical terms? It really, uh, I, I I think, is what what makes people feel uh, alone, uh, and and um, shame is something that isolates us. And I wonder mm -hmm. if, in your earlier years, before. Uh, being recognized, and I certainly know that there was such a time from mm -hmm. from just hearing the other day how many rejections you got before before Johnny Temple published you at at Akashic Books. You had to 
really, really pursue that 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 um, insistence to 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 wanting to be to be published or wanting to for people to read you or hope. And I'm just wondering, did you did you as you now counsel students or at least try to guide them? Uh, did you suffer from that that form of shame? Um. In a way, it didn't. The, 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 my, I think mine worked in a sense that it didn't stop me from writing, but it stopped me from sharing. Ah, that's in, that's so, so that's fascinating. Like by the time I ended up, you know, by the time I came across or um, Johnny Temple and Akashic books, yeah, I already, I would have had a manuscript ready, but nobody would have, but nobody read it. I think um, this, I, you know, and, and part of it is me thinking I'm writing just for myself. But also a huge part of it is this sort of, um, why would anybody want to read this? Um, what would come out if, if this came out? You know, I'm writing a novel that seriously questions, um, religion and sexuality. And at the time, I was still a member of a church. So even in, in you know, in, in that sense, there's just so many, so many different things that were, um, playing against me and, and and create this kind of uh i guess shame response well you know what it's what it strikes me that you're saying is there, there, there may be not no writer's block but they're roadblocks mm-hmm. yeah they're, i think um yeah and and the other, I don't know. I I look at, at, at literary. I, I I like I like I think I like more of a sort of literary impasse or something like that. That's and I think uh, the uh, block, whatever it is, is 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 um the story trying to tell you something. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. They said um, they're three fifths into the novel and they just felt blocked and they haven't been able to go back to it. And so well, maybe the three fifths is telling you something. That, uh, you know, maybe you're falling into that problem Carlos Fuentes talks about, how the worst thing is to get to an end of a novel, to write a novel, and it ends exactly how you thought it was going to when you began it. Um, so that's what you, rather than listening to, to this elusive news, listen to what the novel is telling you. I mean, this is what you're saying. Develop a, a sense of yeah. hearing that is hearing something else than, you know, the solitary, confined writer who's waiting for the visitation. Mm. Or listen to your characters. Right. Uh, um, hopefully the- that if you've been writing them for a little bit, your characters have become people. You know, um, it, it, it always reminds me, I don't know if you know this, we've been, there have been so many references going around uh, in our conversation, I want to come back to, one of the, to some of them. But Marlon, do you know that when, when Balzac died, um, I, I think in 1850, at the age of 50 or 51, he asked for Le Médecin de Campagne, for the country doctor, one of his characters in uh, La Comédie Humaine, in the human comedy, to come by his bedside. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he believed so much in his characters that actually 
the character who was a doctor, he wanted him to come and, really? and, and yes, isn't it amazing? I mean, so, so powerful was that creative imagination. But, but, um, Marlon, you were mentioning all kinds of writers. You just meant, mentioned Fuentes. You, you've mentioned so many others. You mentioned music at the very beginning of our conversation. I want to come back to one reference, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is the typewriter reference, which is Hemingway. And I know in speaking with Johnny, um, and telling him that I might have the pleasure of speaking with you, he said, you know, ask, ask Marlon about Hemingway. Ask him about Hemingway and ask him about Faulkner. <laughs> so, so this, this, <laughs> I, I'm glad you're laughing. This, que- mm-hmm. this question comes from me, um, via Johnny Temple. Anyway, I mean, I teach, I teach hills like white elephants. I teach the Nick Car, the Nick. Um, I always get it. Why do I keep calling him Nick Carraway? Nick Carraway is Gatsby. The Nick Adams stories. Yes. Um, because the two things, two things that I like most about Hemingway are economy and momentum. I think um, that there's so much in in Hemingway that he leaves to gesture, that he leaves to almost the the, the, the prose equivalent of white space. Yeah, and um, and and uh, that be- believing that the way in which people talk and the way in which people act and react is all you need to provide some text in a novel, and I think that's something that people continually, continually forget. I teach students who grew up in the age of film and TV, so I mean, fifty percent of my response, my my examples in a fiction class are still film, because. The only thing that will work for me to get them to understand economy is to say, think in terms of the cinematic. If this were a film, how would that look? If this were a stage play, what you what what is here that you would not be able to use? And I think um, Hemingway is very very instrumental in in in, in recognizing the the what's going on instead of the actuality of the scene. Um, you know, I, I said to people all the time, a sunset doesn't need your help. You, if you don't need to draw for your long waiting metaphor or so on. Just describe it. Just tell us what's going on. Um, as for, you know, as for, um, for Faulkner, I mean, if you're, if you're Tony Morrison, if you're Gabriel Garcia Marquez, if you're writing about any people coming out from slavery or serfdom or, any kind of situation like that, Faulkner is the sort of ground zero. He's sort of the um, the, the the inspiration through which we all come. Um, the idea that the voices that come out of your mouth are valid enough is valid enough for literature. I'm sure Mark Twain, of course, but Faulkner is a person who took us in all these directions that we never thought of um, to you know, show the darkness that runs in the sort of underbelly of family. Um, the feats that you can take with language, the being external and internal at the same time. The thing about Faulkner, which I find really interesting, is that he's both florid and, eco- and, and economical at the same time. It's kind of, you think those things are contradictory, but he manages both at the same time. And, I am still trying to figure out how he does it. And what's so interesting about those two examples is the way you describe them, both Hemingway and Faulkner. In both cases, you use the word economy. And in the case of, of, uh, 
of Hemingway, you use momentum. And in the case of Faulkner, you use florid. And in the case of Hemingway, you use the idea that you try to have your students or whoever is reading to imagine film. And I'm wondering when, when 50% of your class is made by film references and by having them, I imagine, watch some films, which ones do you have them watch that you think might be, might be inspiring, might be helpful? Film. Which films? Uh, The Manchurian Candidate is really, really helpful in understanding how to write characters who do bad things to other people. Um, the Conformist is a really, really good one. Oh, I have to see uh, that again. Uh, sorry? I have to see that again. It's so long ago. But both the, the movie and the book are so extraordinary. Yeah, the, 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 rare, the rare movie book competition that's, that's both perfect. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, what else do I have them watch? The Tin Drum, the film. Um, usually it's usually quite a bit of them. Uh, <clears throat> lots of noir, like Kiss Me Deadly or The Grifters. The, the, because the other thing that, that film does, and sometimes it's not just film, I'll have them read scripts. Uh, for example, scripts from The Sopranos are really helpful at multiple levels, dialogue being just one of them. That, the, one of the things I find, I don't know, and I, I, and I only teach undergrads, so I don't know if this is an MFA problem, but what I find with my students from, say, 18 to 21, is that they have very, they have problems staying in the present tense of their stories. So they will start a story, and within a paragraph, they're in a flashback to 20 years ago. And I'll make, and, and the thing about that is, it doesn't matter if there are five explosions, two murders, three superheroes save the world in the past. You're still writing a story about a guy sitting down in a chair and thinking. It's uh, it, the reader is on pause, but they just—it's the hardest thing for them to grasp being in the present tense. And I think part of it stems from them believing that their own present tenses aren't very interesting. Yet, yet, I mean, we're, we're back again to, to what you, what you said earlier, which is, um, is their voice interesting or do they remain shameful? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it, it's another way of, it, of expressing it. It is. It's, it's how it's expressed in fiction. As, you know, if, 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 if what's happening in the present tense of your story isn't as compelling as the past that you're remembering, why not just set it in the past? I, that was a dilemma I had with my second novel. My second novel was set in 1834. It was based around the court inquest about an escaped, uh, former slave. And, um, every time I went to a, a flashback, I, the book just came alive for me. Whereas every time I went into the present, it became a chore. That is, you know, it's like I look at it and just thought, well, this too shall pass. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Why not just set it in the past? So the novel went back 34 years in the past. The language changed and it became the Book of Night Woman, my second novel. And, and, um, Marlon, your, your upcoming book mm-hmm. is set 
one might say even more, I mean, you were telling me a tiny little bit about it, nuggets, mm. uh, just really an hors d'oeuvre, you were, uh, it was kind of a little appetizer, an amuse-bouche, as it were. Um, it, it, it is, you, your, your next novel is taking us to, is it the 15th or 16th century? I can't remember now, tell me. Even earlier than that, we're oh. talking like, uh, probably a little, little, a little after the, the 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 little after the Iron Age, but before we get to the Middle Ages. So, so twelfth century. So it'd be like the nine hundreds. Oh, so the 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 tenth century or something like that. Yeah, and it's weird saying it because a lot of those, those terms, for the most part, are European terms. So, like people who've read it so far go, "Yes, this is really cool," but I don't get a sense it's Dark Ages. I'm like, "Well, you, you won't." Because the Dark Ages is a European term. So that type of, it's tricky saying it's set in the past because I'm not using that kind of timekeeping. So what time is it set in, 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 in non, in non-European terms? What, 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 in what? In non-European terms, there really isn't time like that. There's, I mean, the closest would be Arabian terms. Um, that's interesting. Help me, help me think about this. I'm, I'm. Yeah, it's not necessarily set. The thing is, it's not necessarily set in a time or space, but the guidelines I'm using would be medieval Africa. Medieval Africa. Yeah. So, just in the same way, say, Game of Thrones is not necessarily set in a specific time or space. But you can tell it's taken its cues from the Dark Ages. And so this will be a, um, a novel set in in the 10th century. We won't give a name to that to that uh, uh, period. But the first thing you have to let go of is the idea of setting. Okay, correct me. Because I think we in the West use time and place as a grounding. And I'm ripping that grounding away. How so? Meaning that it could be, meaning that somebody could easily read this novel as set in an alternative universe as today. Even though certain concepts aren't in there, like the concept of speed or the concept of velocity or the concept of um, time being linear or so on. So, so it's, 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 um, in other words, nobody, there, there's no, nobody suddenly shows up with a, with a, with a, super sophisticated, you know, powered vehicle. So is it, si still, is it science fiction in reverse? It's sort of a science fiction in reverse. This is why I have no problem calling it fantasy. So would, 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 um, would predecessors of this way of thinking exist in the West? I mean, would, would someone like Tolkien or others be, 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 um, I don't know. I, I have no idea, actually. I'm, and, and, and the interesting thing in, in the West, I imagine, which I'm, I'm, I, I suppose I'm infused with is that we always look for, um, our bearings. And I think it was very interesting the other day when Paul Beatty said, you know, we, we, we compare, um, uh, 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 Tony Morrison to such and such, but we don't make the inverse comparison. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, who does this compare to, or is that even a ridiculous question? Uh, you, you know, I, I think I'm, you know, the, the, the things I'm most inspired by, not in, in the, in the, not in, in the context of, of 
setting in place would be something like Arabian Nights. Ah. Or, um, you know, the, 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 the Calavilla, or, um, I probably pronounced that wrong. Um, How about the, the Norse mythology? The Norse mythology, yes. Uh, you know, that it's, it's, um, you, you, you can tell that the times when it, when it was being, Norse gods are being worshipped, but you can't necessarily say the Norse gods fit within a specific time. That's right. If one, gods are beyond time and space. Um, <laughs> but, it's, it, but, but that's one of the things that I think um, readers, when they read this, we're going to have to let go of a little bit. Like, where and when can I place this? I'm like, well, you're talking about some countries that have a different word, you know, that don't even have a word for the word time. And maybe, maybe don't, you know, don't have this concept, which is quite recent of timekeeping. I mean, clocks, clocks and such uh, make that apparition. I can't quite remember, but it's in the 15th century. Mm -hmm. So even me saying it's set in medieval times, medieval means medieval Europe. Right, 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 right. Mm. And and these periods are defined um, retrospectively anyway. People who lived in the Middle Ages didn't know that they were living in the Middle Ages. Right, and then, you know, their like, age of discovery, we, we we already discovered ourselves. You know, it's like, age of who's this, you know, who's age of discovery? Um, so it's, uh, so with, with, so with that, with, you know, with that in mind, it's a novel, I mean, I would say it's, it's set in an imagined past, but it's set in a past in which people from the past would have viewed it. So yes, there are monsters, yes, there are witches, yes, there are people that can fly, yes, there are shape-shifting animals, but these creatures, these people don't draw attention to themselves because it's taken as a given in the world that there are these things. So you know, um, Kaylee, Kaylee Jones um, was particularly intrigued by the the conversation I might be having with you. And um, she, she wrote this to me. She said, one of the many aspects of your writing, Marlon, is your ex- exceptional talent for dialect. I have never found your dialect difficult to read or to understand. No one is better than you, and you're up there with Richard Price and Toni Morrison. In your new novel... Your epic fantasy about ancient Africa. Mm-hmm. Are you attempting to introduce any aspects of language that will be innovative? No, that is a tricky. That is, no, that is tricky, and that is um, territory you have to step into carefully. For example, I I was learning Wolof, and I was I was gonna learn Yoruba, and somebody pointed out Yoruba is a commitment. You maybe try Swahili first. And I thought about that, but now we're running into really tricky territory here because if I do that thing that people do where you write in English and drop a smattering of African languages, then you're treating a language like it's spice. Uh, it's not, it, you, I don't think you serve the language very well. At the same time, I wasn't going to have my character speak Wolof like Wolof or some form of Elvish. Uh, I can't do I can't do with an established language what Tolkien did with invented languages. So where do where do I find myself doing? I find myself 
conjugating sentences in the way in which a lot of these languages conjugate, conjugate sentences. For example, a character in my book would say, they found the ten and nine doors. They're not going to say the 19 doors. Because 10 is the, is the biggest unit. Then it's 10 and 1, 10 and 2, 10 and 3, 10 and 4, 10 and 5. So you get the 10 and 9, and then maybe they'll say 20. So I use, I remember things like that in terms of how I'll use it. The way in which, way in which, the order in which words fall on the page, the allusions that they draw, the way in which numbers and times observe. So I will say things like that. I will say things like instead of, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a crescent moon, and so the crocodile has almost finished eating the sun. Because that's, kind of, that's how it would be, how it would be phrased. So I don't try necessarily to, so I'm still using dialects and I'm still inventing dialects. But what I'm more interested in the, the way in which meaning is, comes across in a language like Wolof and the way in which words fall on the page, but still same with English. And the fact is I still, I come from an English language speaking country. I'm writing a novel in English. So there's a lot of that, um, you know, to play with. Some of the characters speak straight up pigeon, um, which I also had to learn. Um, but a lot of it is me simply sort of, I guess, taking risk in English with the way in which these languages work in their own. So it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. It's precarious. I'm sure one or two people are still going to slam me for it. But that is the way I found that was the only way I thought I could get into the story. Well, I'm so I'm so glad that that um, that Kaylee asked you this question. Um, mm. Kaylee occupies a, a a really important space in in your life, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't know how who you would say she is for you. What word you would use to you know, we, I, I certainly would never dare nor uh, never care to use the word influence, but she's, yeah. she's something very special that I suspect everyone should have at some point. Very, very special. You know, I mean, Flaherty, you kind of talk about, oh, great prose resists paraphrase. I think great people resist paraphrase. So it's, it's, it's where it's, it's, it's trying to sum up. I mean, mentor, obviously. Um, first major creative writing teacher, um, you know, obviously, um, the person who saved my literary career, well, first by telling me that I could have one. Right. Um, the, you know, the person who more than almost pretty much single-handedly brought back my confidence in being a writer and that I had something, that I had something to say. And, um, and it's just amazing that she was replacing, and she was a last-minute replacement for that workshop that where we met. Where was it? Remind me. It was it was a Calabash, right? It was in Calabash. They used to have a, a workshop, which I hope, I keep praying they bring back. Well, we, we, they, they must. I don't want to know that the, the next me or the next Aisha and Hutchinson who just won the National Books Critics Circle Award, we both came out of that workshop. I don't want to know that next Aishan is sitting on there waiting for an opportunity. Um, because it wasn't for, for Kaylee. So, um, I've never been so in a weird way happy that somebody got sick. Did, did she say something to you 
uh, in particular, Marlon, was there a, a, a sentence or a sentiment, something she said that that you heard and that clearly, made clearly, a difference? Clearly. Most of the, the way in which she would say it, I don't know if you can say that on the air. <laughs> uh, you, you, please, please, go right ahead. She said, you know, I remember, I remember it was the afternoon of the third day of the workshop. It was a Sunday. We were wrapping up. And, um, and she said to me, you know, Marlon, you don't know me. You don't know me, but I don't bullshit and I don't fuck around. She said, you're a great writer and you need to see, and I want to see more of your work. I'm 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 really I'm really glad you you said this in this phone call and you know Calabash this extraordinary literary festival in 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 Jamaica on Treasure Treasure Beach is is truly a, a place where people get discovered. I mean, um, you, yeah, it's it's also truly a place where if you are a writer, this was my life for a long time before, but from say from two thousand to two thousand and seven. Um, the bulk of my my writing life consisted of those three days when I'm in the, the perfect world, where I'm in the world I want to be in at all times, or I'm in a world where I'm constantly inspired and just sort of um, thinking this could be a life to only go back to reality on Monday morning. Oh, that's and, yeah, and a crushing, this sort of crushing reality where there's where I'm right back to being somebody who's just daydreaming about being a writer. Um, and so, so for, for the, for the, the Jamaican writer and the Caribbean writer, Calabash is everything plus this, this sort of, um, this space of possibility. But I, I, I just, I mean, just, just, uh, you know, the other day seeing you and, and, and Paul Beatty, the, you know, two Booker Prizes next to each other, but two Calabash Booker Prizes next to, next to each other. I mean, how grand is that? And I must say, um, you know, for someone who chats for a living, I have rarely in my life ever uh, been in conversation or interviewed people like on the stage of Calabash, whether it was Pico Aya or Volsoyinka or Chris Sabani or um, anyone else. Every every fifteen seconds, you the 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 two thousand people audience was there saying "Yeah, man, yeah, man," and you felt them, you know, listening to every word, just hungry, having such incredible appetite. Same thing happened when when I spoke with Salman Rushdie. You mentioned earlier um, all these various references, and we we've spoken about a few, and one was very early on in in our in our conversation, maybe the earliest, which was music. And you were saying you were listening to to Miles Davis, maybe mm-hmm. maybe you were listening to to Spanish Key. I don't know which which. It was Spanish Key. Really. Mm-hmm. So so what. What is it about uh, uh, about Miles Davis in particular, and about that Miles Davis, which is a particular Miles Davis? And what is it also? Because I know uh, from from hearing you speak with passion about about hip hop, that that uh, bo- both Kanye West and and the recent Kendrick Lamar really. Um, really um, mean something to you. So I'd, I'd love to know, on both counts, what they mean to you. Both well, to begin with, with, with Miles, I, you know, the, I remember the first time I listened to Bitches Brew, I had no idea what it was, but I figured it's jazz, it'll be some nice, polite horn playing, I'll just put it on and go to bed. 
<laughs> and thought it would just be, you know, sort of like new age, not even new age, just you know, the, the, the sort of classic thing we, people who don't know jazz think jazz is. And I remember lying down to bed and put on bitches brew, and that thing terrified the living daylight out of me. And, and, and I was, it, it, it was, it was one of the most uneasy times I've ever had at night. Because um, the record demanded that I get up and listen to it. And it was not, it was definitely not a record that was going to go quiet into the background. I think that's the thing about Miles. It's, it's, it's the thing about the trumpeters, I think. The trumpeters are here to call up to attention. That's what we, that's why, that's what the trumpet has always been. And I think one, the, the, the call to attention is one thing. But again, and, and this brings, brings us to Spanish Key, which is on, um, side, I think it's on side three of Bitches Brew. Yeah. Is the, again, the momentum, it starts and it just keeps going. It's a record I write to. It's a record that I, when I'm biking, I bike to. It's a record if, 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 if I'm in the car and you give me control of the CD player, I'm going to put that on. There's just something about it's relentlessly moving from point A to point Z that I like. It's, it's a way of just, it, it just say, get this done, get this done and, and recognize rhythm and move and bounce. And, um, and I saw that record in, in particular track. I probably listened to, I listened to Miles Davis quite a bit, but I probably listened to Bitches Rue a lot more than any other album. And I listened to Spanish Key probably at least, I was listening to it last night. I don't think of mo- I don't think I've a week has gone by when I do not listen to Spanish key. I don't think a week has gone by without me listening to it in near probably ten years. Um as for hip hop, you know, I'm a child of the eighties. I grew up in I was eighteen in eighty eight, which, you know, people like me like to think is the goldless the actual golden age of hip hop. And um for me a lot of the the um I think people have been waiting for this sort of creative renaissance in hip-hop that they didn't realize it actually happened. And, um, you know, Kendrick Lamar in particular, um, somebody I listen to quite a bit, I listen to his lyrics, I, on, you know, I on, sort of uncork them, I, I, I wrestle with them, I have issues with some of them. I wrote a whole article in New York Times yes. last year about my problems with one of his songs. Um, despite loving the song, I like that, um, there's a such relentless creativity going on. And I'm inspired by relentless creativity in, in a lot of ways. Um, I remember saying this in, um, uh, in maybe in an Australian interview and I was talking about the role Outcast played in my creativity. That a huge reason why I finally sort of got off my ass in Jamaica and got serious about being a writer and doing everything to make that happen was me hearing an album like Aquemini and thinking these guys are younger than me and they have this work of art that's separate from them that they can look back and say, I did this. What do I have? I have a bunch of jingles and some art direction that I did for Vanity Fair. Uh, like I didn't, uh, the, the idea that if you're an artist, you need to start. The only, the only proof that you're an artist is your art. Um, which finally is something my students don't seem to get sometimes. That the only proof that you're a writer is, is writing. Um, and that hip hop in a large extent, to a large extent, um, inspired me to, 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 to make art, to, um, to, to express yourself in a work of art that eventually becomes separate from you. Um, but yeah, the, the, 
I still find myself, even when I'm writing in medieval times, conjugating a sentence in a way that only hip hop could have done it. It's like when I read Juno Diaz, I can tell who he listens to. Who does he listen to? Well, I can tell that Juno Diaz, from listening to him, I knew he listened to, to lots of Della Soul. I know he listened to, to, to um, Ice Cube. I know he definitely listens to Cypress Hill. Um, Mob Deep. Uh, who else? You know, if I had Oscar Wilde in front of me, I could just I could pinpoint all of them. Um, but, you know, Juno, Juno in particular is one of those writers who um, is such a firm believer that the world right outside is his window is right for for the deepest literature. And it's something that writers, particularly writers of color, can forget sometimes. It's hardly something you forget. And, and you know, it, it strikes me that um, you, you were talking about the golden age of hip-hop. Mm -hmm. uh, it strikes me that you, you seem to say, or I, I wonder if you're saying that Kendrick Lamar, it, perhaps in his most recent album, perhaps in, in, uh, in, um, Element and other, other tracks is, uh, finding again or, or recreating that golden age. Yeah, hip hop is most certainly in a golden age right now. I mean, Kendrick and Vince Staples and, 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 you know, many others, I think, um, and Kanye, of course, that they, they're, they're, pushing the boundaries of the forum so far and um, exploring territory that you think there is nothing left to explore in hip-hop, but, you know, but there is. They're also mapping personal space in a way that I still think is pretty, you know, is, um, is pretty new. I think um, the storytelling that's going on. To Pimp a Butterfly, maybe, you know, I mean, without even exaggerating, To Pimp a Butterfly is a serious candidate for best record of the 20th century so far. You, you wrote about it. First century, uh, so. Yeah. It's, um, even in terms of the debate, it starts. I think is, is absolutely, it's absolutely, um, interesting. In my list of, of if I'm going to make the, the, you know, well, where we are, 17 years in the 20th century, what are the essential bits? I'd probably say Read Ahead Kid A and Kendrick Lamar's The Pimple Butterfly. You know, I. Uh, my beautiful director, fantasy. Marlon, you 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 know one of my my fantasies, which is to bring you on stage uh, w with w with Kendrick Lamar. I I think it would be just. Uh, it'll happen. It'll happen. It has to happen. Crazy. It, no, it just it's crazy, but we we have to make it happen. And I'm going to talk it into being, and I'm, you know, I don't take no for an answer, and I just want to make it happen. I wonder, have you heard the most recent um, album of uh, Jay-Z? Four, four, four. No, I haven't heard it yet. I just wonder what, what you would mean, what you would think about um, mm -hmm. t about this, this notion of exploring new territory and talking about the self in new ways mm -hmm. and whether, whether it would be meaningful, meaningful to, to, to you. It will be, be interesting to hear what you think about it once you've heard it. I want to leave you with a, um, with a quotation of, of, of James Baldwin and, um, see how it resonates with you. I'm sure you know it. Um, he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, um, reading is understand. You know what I like about reading? Reading brings back one of my favorite words, which is actually sympathy. Um, which is not to knock empathy. It's just that empathy is such a trendy word these days. The thing I like about sympathy is the original Greek meaning of it, which is understanding between us. And I think that is one of the things that, uh, literature really, really can bring. Understanding between us. And it's absolutely right that we are, that's the thing we don't, the thing that we don't realize we have in common. And my students have a hard time with this because they think the more vague you are when you express yourself is the more universal you are. I'm like, no, that's not it at all. What we all have in common is that our experiences are real. What we all have in common is our experiences are particular. Our heartbreak is our heartbreak. Nobody's ever had their heartbreak like this before. The thing we have in common is that we all think that. And once you grasp that, then you understand what Baldwin is saying. Reading about heartbreak doesn't make your heartbreak generic. Reading about heartbreak makes you realize, I am not the only person in the world who have had this particularness of experience. And it's that what we all have in common is that it was special. I'm basically, I'm, I'm not alone in the cosmos. I'm not alone in the universe. Absolutely. Marlon, what a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait to see you soon again and to continue this conversation and finally to bring you soon uh, together with Kendrick Lamar. That would be great. <laughs> Take good care, Marlon. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, thanks for talking, Paul. Bye-bye.